we've really worked to train our EMTs and our paramedics and our flight nurses to be amazing clinicians. And uh, in fact, we've also, you know, found that just taking a doctor and putting him in a helicopter doesn't actually potentially benefit people very much because some of those doctors without additional training, you know, they're looking for their CAT scanner or uh, where to put the orders into the computer and they don't have the skills to succeed in that environment. So. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Drew Cathers. Drew is a U.S. physician who is board certified in emergency medicine and emergency medical services. He has extensive experience as a flight physician and is the fellowship and medical director for the University of Wisconsin MedFlight program. He's also a faculty member for the International Anesthesia, Trauma, and Critical Care Pre-Hospital course, as well as an examiner for the Diploma in Retrieval and Transfer Medicine. His other interests include music and combat sports, and he has been a cut man and a corner man for over 100 amateur and professional MMA fights. In this episode, we talk about what it is to be a flight physician, the complex interpersonal dynamics of flight team operations, learning from near misses and almost mistakes, building a just culture, and much, much more. Before we get started, a quick reminder, if you want to join individuals and teams from around the world who are working to perform better during times of crisis and emergency, there are so many ways to get involved with the Emergency Mind Project community, and we would love to have you. The easiest way to get started is to try our free crisis skills test, which you can find at emergencymind.com. All right, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode with Dr. Drew Cathers. I hope you enjoy. All right, Drew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It is awesome to sit down, I was about to say across the table, but like virtually across the table from you and dig into this stuff. We had just some like great rambling, fun conversations over the other times that we've gotten into this stuff, arranging everything from like UFC to flying things to emergency medicine. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where we go today. So thanks for joining. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about a wide range of subjects for sure. Yeah. Amazing. You want to start, just give folks a quick overview of who you are and, and, and what you're up to these days, and we'll sort of work backward and forward from there. So I'm an uh, American emergency medicine and EMS physician. I was trained in emergency medicine at University of Massachusetts, where I also did some helicopter EMS there. Then I completed a fellowship in air medical and critical care transport at the University of Wisconsin. I've stayed there for the last eight years as faculty. I've been involved in education and leadership there. Right now, I split my clinical time between the emergency department and working as a flight physician, and then I work non-clinically as the fellowship director for a fellowship program and then the medical director for our helicopter EMS and critical care transport program. Well, what is a flight physician in that context? Because we've had a bunch of folks on the podcast recently that have come from sort of different backgrounds of that, and there's a, I'll say there's a heterogeneity and a spread in what that actually means. Absolutely. Yeah, it's... Flight physician in, in our context means that we're a dedicated crew member on our helicopter. Um, there's a lot of different models that exist in the U.S. Uh, the most common model is, is flight paramedic, flight nurse, which is a, a very successful model. And there's really amazing clinicians that work in those programs. At University of Wisconsin, we actually have a, a flight nurse, flight physician model. So, so we fly with attending physicians who have additional training in emergency medicine, and, and most of us now we're starting to also be subspecialty boarded in either EMS or critical care. And so that's a lot more common in other countries, England, Australia, Europe, Scandinavia. 
but it's less common here in the United States. Why is that? Is that just historical reasons about how flight programs have started? Or is there sort of a difference of opinion about like what the, in large air quotes here, the right way to run a team is? Yeah, that could be a whole podcast in <laughs> I'm sure we, we don't yeah. have to get into it if there's not, if there's no, not meat no, there no. for this, but no, no. Yeah. Historically, a lot of programs did start as, as physician-based programs. And then over time, there's been a general move away from helicopter programs being strictly university affiliated. There's also been a lot of movement towards privatized or, or for-profit programs, which has changed, I think, the staffing model a little bit. And then I think just in general, culturally in the United States, you know, there hasn't been many physicians involved in EMS care, right? And we've really worked to train our EMTs and our paramedics and our flight nurses to be amazing clinicians. And in fact, we've also, you know, found that just taking a doctor and putting him in a helicopter doesn't actually potentially benefit people very much because some of those doctors without additional training, you know, they're looking for their CAT scanner, where to put the orders into the computer, and they don't have the skills to succeed in that environment. So... Yeah, wow. Let's let's drill on that, right? Like, so one of the things we always talk about on in the podcast and the Emergency Mind Project in general is sort of the difference between knowledge and theory and knowledge and action. And I think you're getting at something that, like, I hope is like a huge anchor point for us in this conversation, which is what is the difference between knowing how to do something and knowing how to do something in the back of a helicopter? How do you train for these different things, and how do you prepare for the types of environments that you're going to be actually functioning in when those environments are, let's say, so unstable, so uncertain? And then also so different from most of the environments you spent your school time in. Yeah, I think what we found is that you do need a fair amount of additional training to go from being a, a good emergency medicine physician to being a good flight physician or from being a good ICU nurse to being a good flight nurse, right? Because your ability to have backups and things like that is just non-existent, right? So it, it's those hands-on manual skills. I mean, we are primarily responsible for setting up and running the ventilator, for instance, for all of our mechanically ventilated patients. In hospital, you would have a respiratory therapist who assists you with that. So those sort of things, being able to translate that knowledge into actual patient care, we found is one of the big things that we train on. And then, you know, the mission profile, the patients we take care of, right? I mean, we have a really broad spectrum of patients we take care of, anything from car accidents, what we'd call scene flights, where you land on the highway, and then we also progress, I mean, we'll do ECMO transports, mechanical support devices, inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, some pediatric critical care. So it's not as easy as saying we're just doing emergency medicine, but it's in a helicopter. There, There's a whole lot of levels and layers to it. Only in this type of a conversation could you say the sentence is not as easy as saying it's just emergency medicine, but in a helicopter. For sure. No, yeah. That's yeah. like being like, oh, it's... Well, I mean, it's not, you know, rocket science, it's just neurosurgery. Like, okay, yeah. well, fine. <laughs> right. I would argue that emergency medicine is hard. Emergency medicine in a helicopter is hard. And then also now we're, apparently we're going to talk about something even harder than that, which like signed me up for. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So it, we're recording this and we're recording this in sort of late June, mid-June, late June. I don't know, whatever. But what's about to happen is July, right? And July is a time all across medicine when you run into the capital letter July problem, right? Which is where you have folks that have gone through medical training in the US in a school scenario, and they've done a little bit of time on the wards in the clinic, 
And then all of a sudden, they hit this phase shift and they cross this line and they go into being a doctor in the actual universe. And that's a big transition. And we see, you know, incredible increases in like the rates of error in July and slowing down and difficulties in communicating as everybody sort of adjusts to that new environment. I would imagine that there's a similar version of that problem set in what you all are working through. Am I reading that right? Is there is there a similar July problem? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly in regards to our fellows. So we have a pretty robust helicopter critical care transport specific fellowship. So actually starting in July, we're actually going to have three MedFlight fellows who are finished emergency medicine training. Two of them have also finished an emergency medicine EMS subspecialty fellowship, and they're coming to do a year of helicopter EMS. And then we also have a accredited EMS fellowship, which is going to do training as well. So yeah, so we have these fellows here. We also have residents. Well, we fly with resident physicians. Typically, they would be a, a third rider just for all the reasons we just talked about. It's so challenging to sure. take a second year resident and, you know, expect them to be able to function independently in that environment. But yeah, it's really about helping them switch that mindset and then also just getting a lot of reps. And mm-hmm. so we're actually doing like a simulation and mixed didactic kind of boot camp this year for all our fellows which we're hoping to to continue throughout the years and kind of use that as like a lot of people call an in-doc program or an introductory program into the world of helicopter EMS. And is that designed specifically to bridge across the July problem or is that also just in general for like the wide gap between helicopter, not helicopter? Both, I guess. Both. Yeah. Yep. So it's definitely designed to bridge across both because we'll also hire attending physicians from outside institutions, because that's what we're staffed with. We have 25 emergency medicine attending physicians who work for us. And so they might come on board in September and then we still have, now we have a September problem, right? So Mm -hmm. we still have to take them from whatever environment they've been at and help them adapt and learn the particular challenges and nuances of what we do in the critical care transport world. Let's push on that for a second. Let's say that you take me as an ER doctor who has never worked on a helicopter before. And you drop me into a helicopter and you're like, all right, Dan, get to work. So you mentioned one thing that would be a real challenge. You guys can't see this, but Drew is smiling evilly at this thought, which I'm like, this is amazing. But you've already mentioned one thing that's a challenge, which is, I guess, what we'd call backup or lateral skills, right? Which is knowing not just that you have to ventilate somebody, but knowing actually how to accomplish ventilating that person. What else would I struggle with? What else would break if you're taking somebody, even with a great emergency medicine background, and dropping them onto a helicopter like that? Sure. Yeah, I think one of the obvious ones is the the aviation skill set. So, you know, we're not trained to to fly the helicopter, but there is training we have to undergo to be safe to operate in and around the aircraft, and understanding of aviation considerations, weather, air traffic control, things like that's a whole you know, issue loading and unloading patients. We have flown patients who are under one pound and we have flown a patient that's over 500 pounds. And we are the people loading, unloading, managing the stretcher, things like that. So there's those kind of manual skills. And then I think, you know, even though the simpler things, right, you perform an intubation, right? At least where I've trained, right? In the ED, you intubate the patient. And then my job is to hold the tube, And someone else is going to secure that tube, right? And then someone else is going to put them on the ventilator. 
and someone else will probably write the event settings down and, you know, I'm moving on to other things. Right. But those are the little things that seem silly. It's those kind of moments, I think, that really make you, you good and slick and, and good at patient care when you have the ability to transition between those moments without any hesitation. Is that just a time on target and training problem set? Or is that also sort of like a different mental model or way of thinking about the world problem set? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it's bold. So some of it's just familiarity with, you know, the different endotracheal tube securement devices, right? And actually understanding how those work. But I, I think a lot of it is that that mindset of, you know, it's just essentially just me and my partner, right? Our nurse and vice versa. The nurse, you know, has a physician. A lot of times there's perhaps other EMS or we're at an outside facility, but really that's the core unit. And so just knowing that we're kind of the people responsible for taking care of this patient and and having that mindset. You know, sometimes I actually find, you know, difficult airways in the pre-hospital area cognitively easier than ones in my level one trauma center. So, you know, if we have a patient with a GSW to the face and we're 80 miles from the trauma center in a parking lot, my airway plan is like quite clear. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, we're going to do best attempt, you know, standard geometry video laryngoscopy with a bougie. If that doesn't work, we're going to attempt to place an extra glottic device. If that doesn't work, we're going to perform a surgical airway. That's it, right? That is our plan. Meanwhile, I'm sure you've all seen it. You're in the big academic center. A patient comes in with angioedema and everyone's like, well, you should really page ENT or have you considered giving tranexamic acid or what about, I wonder what the surgeons are doing right now. Does anesthesia have a fiber scope, right? And you just end up down these rabbit holes. So I think having that almost kind of, you know, this is our responsibility and these are our options can actually be quite clarifying, I think, but it does require a mindset shift. There is some sense, and this happens, I think, in smaller emergency departments too, but not just in the pre-hospital world where you're like, well, I've got one card to play, so I'm going to play it, <laughs> right? And you're just, you're just going for it hard because that's like your option for it versus the the multi multi threading and multi planning. It's definitely an interesting way to look at it that that you're it. Like you're the final you're the final say on all of that. I guess let's push a little bit on the dyad you were describing between the physician nurse also. Because I think that's a really unique, interesting relationship that it's worth exploring a little bit. The way that you all set it up, are you routinely working in the same pairs or are you sort of shuffled around between different people? It depends. We have three different bases that are staffed mm -hmm. 24 7, 365. So we have base preferences. And often, you know, if you work at one base, you're going to more often work with those four or five nurses and, and vice versa. Those nurses are more likely to work with certain physicians, but we don't have, you know, fixed scheduling where you're always guaranteed to be with the same person. And, and even just with 16 nurses and, and 25 docs right there, that's 400 that's combinations. A lot of combinations. Right. Yeah. So. I think one of the things we've, we've really worked on is actually a bit of clarity of expectations, right? Of, hey, this is your job role. This is my job role here. This, the skill set I'm going to have. And here's the skill set you're going to have. And then here's where we meet, right? Cause there is that always that tension, especially when you have a small group, two people that have to do a lot of things. There's always that idea of, okay, ideally, right? Everyone would be perfectly interchangeable. But, you know, I think we also have to recognize we're all human, right? And there's only so many skills and so much knowledge any one of us can retain in our brain. And so, you know, we 
we try and have a lot of interchangeability, but then we each have a little bit of, of specialization, which is just kind of inherent through our different training pathways. And that would be true, you know, if it was flight nurse, flight paramedic, flight physician, whatever path, right? I mean, everyone has different training pathways and slightly different skill sets that they're going to be a little better at. Sure. You know, I think one of the things we we talk about sometimes is the difference between a intact team and a swarm team, right? Intact team, you are selected, you're trained together, you perform together, you go to each other's barbecues, you sort of know each other as human beings and in individuals. And sort of what you think about when you think about like the Olympics or something or, or you know, the Super Bowl championships. Oh, I knew where that guy was going to go before he even started moving. I could anticipate everything he did, right? And on the other end, you get like a code blue response team where you might not know anybody on it. In that second case, in the the swarm team, the weight relies on the roles, not on the individuals, mm -hmm. right? So I don't know you, but I am an ER doctor and you are an anesthesiologist and I know what to expect from you ahead of time like that. What you're describing is a little bit in the middle of those two things, right? There are some personal relationships, right? 400 is greater than, I'm blanking on the name of that. What's that What's that number that oh. it's 150 connections is like the most yeah. the human can hold? Some name. Yeah. I'm sorry yeah. if you're listening to this, forgive me for not remembering <laughs> that number off the top of my head. But you know, most humans can really like capture well about 150 different yeah. relationships. Yeah. And beyond that, we drift a little bit more into this territory where there's there's people that you might not actually know very well. So some of the time it sounds like you're operating more like an intact team. And some of the time you're operating more like a swarm team, which is sort of a fascinating setup in there. You mentioned thinking about clarity of expectations. What else do you all do to make that relationship like not just work, but like excel? Yeah, I think probably the the two big things are we've tried to really emphasize the importance of like a daily shift briefing, right? So, I mean, everyone's going to know, I mean, you're going to know your nurse and you're going to be familiar with them, but maybe you haven't flown with them in a couple months mm -hmm. because of XYZ thing or vice versa. And so kind of borrowing from aviation, right? Which is obviously very closely tied in with helicopter EMS. You know, we have this protected time at the beginning of the day to perform your checks. The pilot's checking the aircraft. The flight crew is checking their equipment. And then we also have time there where we have a checklist that we try and go through, right? To, to learn each other's preferences, you know, where we review, okay, you prefer me to stand on this side. I really like to use the standard geometry blade. I know you're, you know, the physician yesterday really preferred the hyperangulated blade, but I really like the standard blade and the bougie. So we just try and cover all that at the beginning of the shift, which can be helpful for that kind of just in time reminder of each other's preferences. And then the other thing we really are proud of and working on is we do multidisciplinary simulation training. And so, and that is med flight specific. We have a yearly curriculum. We offer CME and we actually pay the, the nurses and the attending physicians their normal clinical rate to come in and do these simulations, which is, I think, pretty, pretty unique. Yeah, we have that's great. Yeah. You know, everybody wears their flight suits. We try and have mock ups of our bags and, and we do the simulations in teams, right? Which is, I think, so different, you know, from what you see in the typical emergency medicine residency program, you know, where it's sim day. So they put three ER residents of varying years in a room, and then there's one person in there who's kind of vaguely pretending to be the nurse and, and 
you know, I think that's so different than actually taking the team that's actually going to care for the patient and and putting them in the simulation. Hmm. I want to go back for one more second to this dyad relationship, and then and then I want to sort of put a bookmark in this idea about multidisciplinary sim because I think there's a lot to talk to about this. So when you're describing this morning briefing kind of handshake moment, like, all right, Dan and Drew, you guys are going to be paired up to fly today on, you know, I don't know what the names of your helicopters are. I'm trying to imagine some awesome like Raptor one or something, right? Yeah. Med one, med two, med three. Okay. All right. Fine. (laughs) Totally fair. Totally fair. You're you're green team leader today, right? Yeah. So you're you're going to go do it. And and you have this checklist that helps you understand the, the preferences. Are those technical preferences? Like you mentioned the geometry, the blade, and are you also doing anything about communication styles or, you know, physiologic tells or something like that about, about cognitive overload? What else is on that, that handshake moment? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great point. It's primarily kind of technical, operational, mm-hmm. logistical, how, you know, if we're going to do hot loading operations, how do you like it? That's a great thought for kind of also diving into that. We're, we're fortunate enough, like I said, to have moderately big team where most people know each other, but that kind of reminded me one interesting thing we found, right, is that so much of the communication we do is is nonverbal. And just like a lot of people have found, COVID has actually made that challenging for us, right? So, you know, you add a mask and then sometimes in the helicopter, depending on time of day, we have our tinted visors down, right, for due to the sun. Um, and if someone has a, a mask on and their tinted visor down, I, I can't tell at all what they're thinking. Right. And that's kind of the little things you don't even think about, but so much of that, you know, subliminal communication is actually via those, those interactions. And so that's been a challenge for us. And I think that's, that's an interesting thought, right. About trying to build something else about that into our, our daily brief for sure. I worked with a non-emergency medical transport group not too long ago. They brought in the emergency mind project to help them with some of their communication and leadership you know, sort of evolution. And we were talking about the Yerkes-Dodson curve and knowing what it's like to be right shifted, right? Basically, like you are cognitively overloaded, your stress capacity, like the stress you're experiencing is beyond your capacity to buffer and your performance is just starting to be compromised. And they were sort of going around the room and discussing their personal signals that they were overloaded. Like, oh, I, I have a different accent, you know, like, a, or I like stand differently or, you know, you'll, you'll notice I, you know, sweat or something. The group came up with this pretty amazing idea, which was to create basically baseball cards and hand them to each other at the beginning of the shift and be like, hey, I'm Dan. This is my training. This is my skill set. The sign that you can look for that I'm cognitively overloaded is blah, 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 blah. And then switch it at the beginning to know what to watch out for in each other. I thought that was a brilliant idea. And I, I don't know of any group that's actually put that into practice yet. So if you're listening to this and you are putting that into practice, like I want to hear about it. I want to hear about how that's going. Because I, I feel like there's something there, right? Like the more time you work in these dyads, like there's got to be a way to do some of that stuff in addition to the technical exchange. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really, it also requires quite a quite a level of self-insight. You know, I'm sure, kind of trying sure. to sit here and think about, well, what, what do I do when I get overloaded? I'm like, I, I think I get quiet. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's probably one of my tells, you know, whereas somebody else, like you said, might start over explaining or over talking. Right. So I, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, you know, the idea of trying to, to codify that and share that as opposed to the only other option is you just try and learn that over time. Right. Mm-hmm. And some of the nurses I've flown with for eight years and I can, I can have that sense. Right. But other 
ones, you know, they probably don't have that sense of me. So that idea of trying to, you know, write that down is is pretty interesting. I think it's a fascinating thing. I I don't know what the right answer is about how to do it. I, I think we'd have to really sort of explore that a little bit more. But so much of what we do relies on time on target to work, right? Right. You're like, yeah, after seven years, I like I understand when that nurse is like subtly telling me, Dan, you're making a terrible mistake right here. <laughs> right. But but like our our radars, you know, for what's happening are definitely challenged the more of extraneous cognitive load we're under, whether that's in the ER or on a helicopter or whatever. So are there ways to use tech, either like high tech or, you know, low tech? to really bridge some of that gap in order to make it better and make it easier to have those conversations. One of the other things we try and always do is a relatively in-depth debrief, right? And that's one of the beautiful things about helicopter EMS and, you know, the, the helicopter is awesome, right? Flying is awesome. But I think almost more importantly, compared to the ER, the helicopter is kind of a filter, right? So in your average ER shift, you'll see 35 patients and maybe three were really sick. And the helicopter is nice because it kind of filters out everybody else lets you focus on those three really sick people you'll see over the course of your day. And then it gives you that time while you're restocking or after the transport to really go in and debrief. That's where you learn some interesting things where, you know, the nurse is like, oh, I I was actually really worried about you not intubating the patient. You're like, whoa, I, I missed that completely. Like, I thought you were okay with our decision to hold off, you know, and that's, like you said, you start to figure those things out. And it's, it's, I think one of the most important things we do, it's actually part of our QI form is, did you perform a debrief? And the follow-up question is, are there any topics that you think would be good to bring to the group in an educational or simulation kind of training? So there's a a tick box for debrief, but it's more than just taking a box because you're offering folks the opportunity to sort of like highlight this as a learning learning lesson. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Chuck Shepard, who's very famous, well-regarded medical director of a lot of helicopter programs in Missouri. Yeah, I went to a lecture of his recently. He said, one of the most important things you can do is you can't let your almost wrongs become wrongs, right? And the idea is you have to you have to share, you know, oh, we almost disconnected the ventilator because it looped under in this way, right? And that's like, well, you got to share that, you know? So. All right. You can't let your almost wrongs become wrongs. I love right. that. I absolutely, absolutely love that idea. That idea of only a a fool learns from his own mistakes, right? (laughs) We should all be trying to learn. And when we make mistakes, we should share those, right? To prevent those things from happening again. Yeah. So why doesn't that happen, right? What's in the way of that? Because you and I can sit here on this podcast and be like, yes, yes, yes. Let's share our personal issues and our mistakes and, you know, not let our almost wrongs become wrong. And then you go into work and you're like, oh, there's like a thousand things that are almost wrong here that like nothing's happening with. What do you see as being in the way of that? Some of it's institutional and organizational and some of it's personal, right? I mean, especially mm-hmm. when you make a mistake, it's, it is hard to, to share that and to feel comfortable. And, and I think you really need a, a culture of safety. I mean, one of the big things they talk about in EMS is this, this concept of just culture, which there's a few textbooks about it. It's really kind of a great concept, the idea that, you know, the primary thing when we go to examine anything that went wrong, we're really trying to look at it from a a systems perspective, not Dan, you know, drop the patient, but okay, like what happened here, right? Well, we didn't have a very good stretcher and we didn't give Dan any training on how the stretcher worked. And we sent Dan out, 
you know, on the 21st hour of his shift to drive nine hours, right? So this, at the end of the day, really isn't Dan's fault much at all, right? It's really the the organizational thing. But I think trying to frame that for everyone then makes it easier for people to come forward. And certainly we haven't totally figured it out. I mean, it's, it's a sure. process we're working on every single day, building that culture of psychological safety and, and sharing of, of mistakes and, and trying to keep that emphasis on the program as a whole. Yeah. And I think you're, you're definitely getting into the idea that like, you know, when we're talking about psychological safety, we're definitely talking about the role that leaders have in going first loudly and often about this, right? To say, Hey, this is an almost mistake that I just made. This is what we're going to do about it. Like, let's, let's watch me get up there and sort of throw myself out there and see what happens with it. And then, you know, you're definitely right. That, so talking with, with uh, Eve Purdy not too long ago about the idea of psychological safety being an emergent property of an organization and a team as opposed to a leader-driven sort of process, right? And I guess I'd ask like, you know, you can talk about what the leaders do. You can talk about what you as the director does, but what else do you see as the edges of the shape of your organization that make this more or less likely to happen? I don't know if that question quite makes sense outside my head or not, but I'm, I'm trying to ask, if you imagine shaping the culture of your organization to nudge people towards this kind of a thing, what do you think is nudging them towards or away from it? Sure, sure. Yeah. And they talk about, you know, culture eats policy for breakfast, right? So, I mean, you can write all the policies you want, right? But you have to try and try and build that culture, which it's something you try and do every day, you know, and that's something we're, we're still working on. I, I know a lot of places are working on, and it's really about not, like you said, not coming just from the leadership, but from the individual people. I think one of the really good phrases, you know, we kind of talk about, and I believe I stole this from the culture code, which is a fantastic mm-hmm. book by Great Daniel book. Coyle, is that idea of, Hey, you know, like this isn't the way we do things here. Right. So. When we have that, when the pilot can tell me or the nurse can tell me or I can tell the pilot, you know, hey, like nobody put their night vision goggles on to test them before the night shift. And then we got a flight and all our batteries were dead. Like that's not how we do things here. Right. So that idea of that ownership by, you know, the people actually doing the work and then really that safety where we feel we can report that we feel we don't have to try and cover things up. We feel comfortable knowing that this is a, a non-punitive environment. And and that's, you know, much easier said than done, I sure. think. But it's it's really that that idea. It's something you got to try and work on every day. And some days we're gonna flip backwards and I'm gonna make mistakes and you're gonna make mistakes. And and it's just about always trying to move forward. Do you find a difference in the culture between the different bases? right? Because you have people that are geographically distributed and sort of a little bit different. I would imagine circumstances where you could get micro cultures at one or more of the bases that were more or less in line with ideals than others. And so like, please answer that in a way that doesn't name anybody's name or anything. But like, do you find that or do you find that there's an overarching sort of global culture that, that really runs the show? Yeah, we've definitely seen the the development of those micro cultures. And that's just you know, that's just a fact of the way things were. I think we used to have a more, we were for about 20 years. And and when I first came to University of Wisconsin, we were all stationed at the same place. We just had two helicopters. And, and over the last seven years, we've kind of slowly added a helicopter and, and spread out. And so we're starting to see the development of those micro cultures, which 
isn't necessarily a bad thing. For you sure. know, that's, that doesn't mean that one place is, is wrong or one place is right, but it can make things interesting. And I think even speaks more to that idea of that, like you said, that daily handshake of, you know, oh, I'm at this base today. How do you guys normally do this? Right. And as long as the overarching principles are there and we're safe and we're doing good medicine, I think that's fine. And then we do try and make an effort of then kind of bringing everybody back in. Right. So we have a lot of virtual meetings, which has actually been a big boon. So we have like a quarterly morbidity and mortality conference just for med flight, critical care transport. We have the simulation training. We have a yearly safety day training where everyone gets together and we do lectures and safety simulations. So kind of trying to be cognizant of that, bringing everyone back together, back under that one roof and under the same the same banner on a regular basis is important to help break down some of those differences. Hmm. I want to go backwards slightly. We were talking earlier about this idea of multidisciplinary team simulation. And to me, that really points towards this pretty fascinating thing about simming, training, learning, and performing across different cultures of training, right? So you have doctors, nurses, other places have paramedics and nurses. You have all of the aviation folks. Every one of those people can be a finished product, in quotes, having come up through a very different line of training, different philosophies, different ways of thinking, modulated in large part by like historical differences in how training is accomplished in the United States. But what is that like? How do you bridge those divides? How do you harness the differences and diversities of opinions and bridge the divide to produce a a more unified and more excellent, for lack of a better word, sort of finished product? It can be challenging. I think on the physician side, we're more used at least. Actually, that's not even true. You know, we have several very experienced, very amazing physicians who are been out of residency for 20 years. And then we kind of sucked them back in and said, hey, you're going to do simulations in front of other people. And that that was a challenge. So I don't know if it's necessarily, you know, physician versus nurse. It's more just being comfortable with that idea of simulations compared to somebody like me who started doing simulations as a medical student. I think in general, simulation training is probably less seen within the, the nursing culture. I feel comfortable saying that every woman in my family is a nurse. My mom, my sister all three aunts, my cousin, they're all nurses. So wow. yeah, yeah, which is awesome. God. Nurses are amazing. But just that idea of, of you know, having them do simulations, it, it took a little bit, right, to get them comfortable. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's been a couple of years now, and we're starting to, to really turn the corner where people are really excited, whether you're an experienced doc, a new doc, experienced nurse, new nurse, that idea of getting them all together to do simulations, mm-hmm. and they're, they're seeing the benefits and they're also seeing that it's a safe place, right? And and part of that ties back into not only do you debrief, but especially with simulation, you have to pre-brief, right? That idea of, hey, you know, these are our assumptions. We're all here to learn. We understand this is an artificial environment. We understand things are going to be challenging. Mistakes are going to be made. And in no way is this reflecting on your work performance or any sort of evaluation. We are purely here to try and learn and to get better as we go. And and then we do very long debriefs where honestly, sometimes I, I'm the person debriefing and I learn more than they learn from me, right? Because we just have such an awesome team. So that's awesome. Shifting gears nearly entirely here. One of the things that I really wanted to hit on in this is like the interface between thinking and training in martial arts and thinking and training in medicine. I guess I, I'm going to leave it at that, like armed with that. What, 
Like, what do you think? Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite subjects. So I think you and I in Scotland spent a fair bit of time talking about this. Absolutely. Kind of fortunate. You know, I started training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu 2006. So quite a while ago, I've been kind of spent a lot of time training in in various combat sports and, and martial arts. I've done some some competitions. I'm certainly not the the greatest athlete nor the most successful, but I've always been fascinated by that that side of things, the training methods, the strategies. I've been lucky enough to also be a cut man and a corner man for over 100 amateur and professional MMA fights, including up to the UFC. A big shout mm-hmm. out to my brother, Matt Bassett, who I cornered almost all of his professional fights, including up through the UFC. So I think just the the experience in that world has really informed a lot of my life and then a lot of kind of my medical teaching. And to circle back, right, there's that that idea of, you know, the difference between I think like cognitive skills and, and technical skills. And I think the surgical specialties are probably better at this. At least in emergency medicine, I felt like you know, we'll use the example of airway management, intubation, right? So there's this this idea that you did really well in your step one, you crushed your in-service, you're awesome at interpreting a blood gas, so like you are good at intubating, right? But we all know that's not necessarily true, right? I mean, the cognitive ability to think about drug dosages and VQ mismatch and all these other things really has nothing to do with the, the technical skill of these very specific hand and body movements to perform laryngoscopy and pass an endotracheal tube. And I, I think that the training in that regard has been kind of lacking and that the consideration of that has been probably not what it should have been, you know, historically. And what do you think the martial arts does differently about that? Yeah, I think just the idea of the need for repetition, the need of application of, of theory and then the need for routine practice. You know, we have, if you're an emergency medicine physician and you've been in practice for 20 years and you haven't done a surgical airway in 15, you probably haven't practiced one in 15 either, right? And just, I think we kind of have a little bit of magical thinking sometimes in medicine where we just think, I'll I'll be able to do it if I have to. But if it was anything else, you know, if you were shooting a free throw in basketball and you hadn't done one in 20 years, you would have no expectation that you were going to be good at it. I think we kind of have a little hand wavy magical thinking sometimes in medicine about this. And, you know, I think it's important to recognize that those that's an entirely different skill set and it really has to be dug down into and explored and, and your technique refined and the repetitions performed and you have to do stage repetitions, periodic revisiting of it, all those things. So there's certainly a sense of, I'm laughing, thinking about, you know, the number of things, moves that I used to be able to pull off when I was, let's say 20 years younger that like, I'm now like, oh, but you know, like, no, it doesn't work like that. Like you have to continue to drill and you have to continue to learn on it and, and to really, you know, refine that practice and, and know where your edge is at any given time and what you're going to be able to do for it. I also really love, and I'm curious what you think about this. Like there's a thing that we do in jujitsu, which is positional sparring, right? So it's the idea that you're going to take a subset of all of the space and play a semi-live game within a subset of space. And if you drift outside that space, you're going to reset because you're really going to concentrate on that one piece of space over and over again. I think it's an incredibly useful tool for learning. 
right? It accelerates the number of repetitions you have within a particular subspace and it allows you to to practice at the edge of things, but also focus at the same time. Is there a positional sparring for emergency medicine? That kind of reminds me, I think probably the closest thing is, and we do this with some of our simulation training is called uh, various things, but the most common term is rapid cycle deliberate practice. So for instance, we actually did this recently with some of our emergency medicine residents where we had a simulation case. They progressed through the case. It progressed to a cardiac arrest. They managed the cardiac arrest, put the Lucas on, got the airway, did all these things. And then we actually paused the case, went back, talked about what happened, showed them a couple tips on how to do things. And then we restarted the case right from the moment of cardiac arrest, right? Mm-hmm. And you can do that over and over. And you actually saw, you know, immediately doing that just one cycle, right? Their improvement got way better, you know? Love that. You can do similar things with running airway checklists. I mean, kind of anything like that where you kind of force these scenarios and then not only redo it, but also providing feedback, right? That's the other piece, right? Because if you're just doing it slightly wrong over and over, you're not really gaining any benefit there. So it's it's that appropriate feedback and then that rapid cycle of redoing it. That's probably the closest thing I can think of to that kind of idea of, you know, you know we're going to pass the guard for 10 minutes and reset mm-hmm. if, you know, once we do. The feedback loops are, you know, quite vivid and vicious in jiu-jitsu, right? You are, part of you is about to break. <laughs> it's very, very <laughs> obvious if something worked or not. I love that idea. That's a really cool way to run a sim. I think that's, I think that's pretty awesome. I want to give you a chance to issue a challenge to folks listening to this. So as you think about the people, both medical and non-medical, who are are thinking about these things, about team dynamics, about just culture, cognitive technical skills, learning from almost mistakes, whatever it is, what is it that you want them to do differently? What is it that you want them to try? Great question. I think twofold. I think one, I, I think in the US, I think EMS... And, and kind of pre-hospital interfacility transfer care has been pretty fragmented and almost sometimes viewed as an afterthought. And I think that's kind of an injustice to our patients. And, and it's also, you know, an injustice to the amazing EMTs, paramedics, you know, flight nurses, flight physician, everyone out there. So I think just, just, you know, asking for people to spend a little more time, a little more attention on your EMS colleagues and, and kind of that care that's provided outside the hospital. Um, that would be one of the challenges. And then I, I think the second is just to parlay what we just talked about with our technical skills. You know, no matter what your job is, right? Take a step back. Think about those procedures you routinely do. Really think about those ones you don't routinely do, but are within your your skill set and you might have to do. And set aside a little time to really dive deep into, okay, what is the current best practice on a surgical cricothyrotomy? And then actually spend a little bit of time practicing that. And just being mindful of that, that just because you did it 17 years ago as a resident or when you were in paramedic school doesn't mean you're going to be able to uh, to do it when the time comes. Awesome. Drew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thank you for what you're up to. Thank you, sir. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure and probably run into you at a few more conferences and uh, it's been amazing. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. 
If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. All right. Good luck out there.